One good announcement, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this right now, is that this past week, we fixed four of the five, or four of the five units, uh, the AC units, that makes this place a lot better. Hallelujah. Oh, my gosh. Now, I'm still going to sweat. That's the thing. I'm still going to sweat up here. These lights are bright, but you know what? I don't care. It feels so much better. When I was sitting in my office uh, during the week, I mean, I had a fan on me, and I still was sweating. It was hot. So thank you, John, for uh, working with the, the tenants of this, or the, I don't know, I, whoever leases this to us. Landlord, Landlord thank you. Uh, we're still got the one for the bathrooms being worked on. That'll be fixed tomorrow, but uh, yeah. So thank you for giving us grace as we move into this space. As you can see, there's still things that are being worked on, and, uh, but I'm gracious to, to God that we have this space to worship. It's been a blessing to me, and I hope so to you. We come now in our study of the book of Acts to chapter 22, and it is fitting for me to explain a little bit, just a little bit about what we are going to read you recall Paul has come into Jerusalem. It has been his desire to go to Jerusalem to care for the church in Jerusalem. He told all the churches in Asia that that's what he wanted to do, to go to Jerusalem, particularly for Passover. And he comes to Jerusalem finally, and he brings them an offering, the church in Jerusalem offering. Strangely, we don't hear much about this while he's in Jerusalem, but he comes bringing an offering. And when he gets there, the church in Jerusalem's like, look, Paul, we've got to deal with something. People in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem think that you're teaching something contrary to what they believe, what we teach. You've got to address this. And Paul says, absolutely, let's address this. And the way that they addressed it was he was, he was going to take vows with four men, and he was going to pay for their haircut. And he does just that. And he goes into the temple and for seven days, he's performing this vow and showing to all these Jewish Christians that he indeed is in line with what they're teaching. But the Jews see him, Jews from Asia, Jews who had likely seen him on his missionary journeys in places like Ephesus and Philippi and places like this. And they say, you are teaching something contrary to the Jewish faith. And these Jews stirred up this great chaos and they said, we need to kill you. So on the verge of his seven-day vow that he's taking, he's in the midst of chaos, in the midst of what is likely, to his knowledge, um, his last moments of his life. But in the midst of this chaos, a Roman tribune, kind of the leader of a, of a Roman guard, comes in and, he, and he's like, okay, whoa, 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 what's going on? And they settle things down. And the Roman Tribune becomes kind of like the safekeeping of Paul in the midst of this, in this story. And Paul says to the Roman Tribune, I'd like to make a speech. And so he gives a speech. And it is this speech that we're going to be studying today. So chaos ensuing. Paul wants to speak. And this is the speech that Paul gives. So here, um, Acts 22 Verses 1, I'm going to read all the way through 29 through the end of this kind of story, of this chaotic moment in the temple courts. Here's what Paul says to the Jews who are wanting to kill him. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said this, I am a Jew, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were with there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this word, the Jews had listened to him. But then they raised their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and that he had found him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you something, one of my deepest, it's not a deepest secret. I'm gonna give you one of my names, okay? It's a name that was given to me by my classmates. And it's a name that you must hold reluctantly. My name in high school was Dan the Fan. Dan the fan, that was my name. 
Now, I was Dan the fan because one of my favorite things to do in all of high school was to go to our high school basketball games and heckle the other team. <laughs> People knew that I loved our sports team. Let me tell you something. We had a good basketball team. I mean, we had a seven-foot German who would have just stunned you. He was amazing, Jan Fikiel. Now, as you can imagine, with seven-foot German named Jan, we're going to be a really competitive basketball team, and by golly, we were. And we ended up in the state final four my senior year. And you know, as Dan the fan, I'm going to go to the state final four. And we played this team called P.K. Young from Gainesville, Florida. I thought they had no chance. We had Jan Fikiel, the seven-foot German assassin who shot threes. He was Dirk Nowitzki before Dirk Nowitzki was Dirk Nowitzki. But little did I know that P.K. Young had perhaps the greatest basketball player I have ever laid eyes on, a man named Terry Williams. And of course, my job as Dan the Fan was to make sure Terry Williams knew that he was about to face one of the best basketball teams he ever knew. And so in pregame warm-ups, I let Terry Williams know, you got no chance. <laughs> Terry Williams looked at me, blew me kisses. <laughs> oh! Okay, that's how it's gonna be today. I didn't realize I poked a bear. <laughs> I have never witnessed a game of basketball in my entire life. Terry Williams was the greatest basketball player I'd ever witnessed in my life. Terry Williams would walk across half court. He would, I, I, okay, I don't know if he did this, but this is how I feel like Terry Williams. He would dribble the ball half court, look at the, look at the crowd, give us a wink, shoot a three on the other side of half court, make it, and walk back laughing. I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. This guy is amazing. Now, there's probably a lesson in this. Terry Williams ended up tearing his ACL in the second half, and we ended up winning the game, and all right, here we go. There's a lesson of pride in there I think you can learn. But here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It was one of the greatest shows I'd ever seen in my entire life. I still remember Terry Williams 22 years later. He showed off, he showed out, and I was left in awe. I love seeing people do what they do best. I wanted to stand up, I wanted to weep for this Terry Williams guy because he tore his ACL, because what he did was unbelievable. It was spectacular, and it left me in awe. I love those moments. Let me ask you, do you love those moments as well? I mean, there's probably moments in your life where you see someone doing what they do best and you're just like, that is amazing. Like, you just stand up. Even though I didn't like Terry Williams and his team, you stand up and you're like, yeah, baby. Yeah. I want you to know this. God does this all the time. And, and, and like we read in Psalm 65, you know, the, the, the psalmist is kind of saying, like, look, literally, look at, the, look at the, the world that we're living in and just think about the God who created the world. As I look at these beautiful green trees through the windows, I, I, I mean, you can, the complexity simply of the trees and to consider the God fashioned them. Like, it, it, literally, if I was a scientist, would, it, I, I would be like, you, you realize the complexity of these trees and it, it would leave you in awe the, the, the complexity of the, like, God does this all the time. And yet, so many of us, we just kind of just, uh, we, 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 we don't even, we just kind of go about our day and we don't, we don't even consider just 
and I know this word is often overused, how awesome our God is. And we don't even worship him. Guys, our God is an awesome God, worthy to be praised. And what I want to do today is I want to show you the story where God just straight up shows off just how awesome of a God he is. It's the story of Paul. It's the story that Paul tells the Jews to settle them down, to kind of get them to pay attention to the God who has interacted with him in a profound way. It's the story that Paul wants these Jews to sit and be in awe of. Of course, they don't. At least, we don't think they will. But it is the story of God showing off. And there's three aspects of God that he shows off that I want to bring to your attention. And I love my outline today because I'm, I'm putting adjectives in there because it's like, you know, you got to have like the super extra attributes of God. And there's three aspects of God that I want you to, to see extra. The first is God's wonderful wisdom. This story demonstrates to us God's wonderful wisdom, and I'm gonna show you how first. So here's the first aspect that I, that I want you to behold that you might just be in absolute awe of who God is. God shows off his wonderful wisdom as we, we read this story and consider this story. How does God show off his wonderful wisdom? Well, God shows off his wonderful wisdom in choosing Paul to be the very man that he brings the, that brings the gospel to the known world. He chose Paul to be the main conduit to bring the gospel message to the world. This is profound wisdom. You would think that God might choose someone like Peter, who had been with Jesus for three years. Peter, the one who called the rock. But that's not who God chose. You might think that God might choose James or John, the sons of thunder, to be the ones that bring the message of the gospel to the world. But that's not who God called. God in his wisdom chose Paul, a zealous Jew. This is the story, right, that Paul tells these people. He's like, guys, I want you to know who I was, right? This is the, how he begins his speech. He says, I am a Jew by birth. But not only that, I'm a Jew who grew up here in Jerusalem. And I didn't just grow up here in Jerusalem. Look who I was taught by. And he names his teacher Gamaliel. Gamaliel isn't just any old teacher. If you go back to Acts 5, we see that Gamaliel is a, is a, he's a council member of the Pharisees. He's one of the greatest teachers, according to Josephus, that ever was known in this period of time for the Jews. Paul sat under his feet, and then he says this, and I was a zealous promoter of the law, just as you were. I learned under Gamaliel, and I was a zealous promoter, but then he goes this, I was a persecutor of the way. The way is just the way that was used to describe Christians at this time. They called it the way. And he said, I was a zealous promoter of the law and I even persecuted the church. It is this man, 
a Jew born in Tarshish, but brought up in Jerusalem. This man who was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, this man who was a zealous persecutor of the way that became the incredible promoter of the church. You see, Paul was this incredible Jew. He had this incredible understanding of the Old Testament that he learned under Gamaliel. He would have also been the one whose disposition would be compelled to move forward in the face of opposition. And God chose him to bring the message to the world. He was a zealous Jew. God was incredibly wise to choose him. But he wasn't just a a Jew, was he? This story also reminds us that he was also a what? He was a Roman citizen. If you skip ahead in the story, jump ahead in the story, after Paul had given his speech, the people in the temple wanted him dead. And so the Roman tribune brought him out of the temple and brings him into the barracks because they wanted the chaos to slow down. And they begin to order him to be flogged and they stretch out his arms so that he might be whipped. And Paul says to them what? Is this lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And what happens? (laughs) Their faces turn white. He's a Roman citizen. And he's a zealous Jew. He has freedom and protection because he's a Roman citizen. God is no dummy. He chose the perfect man for this perfect time to do this wonderful job. Paul, a zealous Jew who happens to be a Roman citizen, is chosen by God to bring the gospel to the world. You and I would not have chosen him, but God in his wonderful wisdom did. This week, uh, in our denomination, the PCA, we lost two of the most influential leaders in our denomination, perhaps that our denomination has ever known, in Harry Reeder and Tim Keller. Both of them died on Thursday and then on Friday. These two men, I think, would arguably be the most influential Presbyterian leaders the last hundred years. And perhaps, like me, you are saddened by their passing. They had such an influence, perhaps, on your life as they did on mine. I feel their loss incredibly deeply. But I think about the influence that these men had on the church and how profound an impact they had. But then I think about Paul. This, this is not hyperbole. I'm, I'm just gonna say this. Paul is the most influential person not named Jesus who's ever lived. This zealous Jew who happened to be a Roman citizen wrote 13 books of the New Testament and those 13 books have continued to shape and influence the world as we know it. It shaped governments, culture, churches, the way you view the world. Here is a man who God chose, just like he chose Reader and Keller to impact just a small pocket of the church today. He chose this man. And what incredible wisdom that Paul, or that God had in choosing Paul. It's not who we would have chose, but God chose him. And he demonstrates his wisdom, and we continue to be the beneficiaries of that wisdom today. Look, if it doesn't, move you to be in awe of God that he chose Paul. I don't know what to tell you. It's not who we would have chosen, but God chose him. And man, are we blessed because of it.
What does this mean for us? I think here's what, what, what it says. That there is nothing that God ordains and brings about that is wrong. Whatever situation you are going in, God has wisely ordained that to pass. And you should be grateful in that moment. That nothing, that there's nothing that God brings to pass that is not in his control. And his will is what is best and wise, regardless of the circumstances. He is wonderful in his wisdom, so you can trust his wisdom. God demonstrates in this story his wonderful wisdom in choosing the perfect man for the job at hand, to bring the gospel to the world, a zealous Jew who happens to be a Roman citizen, to bring the gospel to the Jew and Gentile. It should amaze us. But there's a second aspect of God's that I want to bring to your attention that needs to be stated. It's not just his wonderful wisdom we need to see to be in awe of him. We also need to see, secondly, his purposeful power. God's purposeful power is evident throughout this story. God shows off his purposeful power in bringing Paul, the zealous Jew, to himself and then to the world. Let's consider the story of Paul again, and it's worth reading in its entirety. I'm not going to speak Paul's word for himself. I'm just going to let Paul speak for himself. Look at verse 6. Listen to this incredible story of transformation. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now I want you to skip to verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Powerful, powerful transformation. Then an Ananias said to me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Did you see what happened? The man who was a zealous persecutor of the church in but a moment, in encountering the risen Lord, became a zealous promoter of the church. In a moment, a man who was a zealous persecutor of Christians became a zealous promoter of Christianity. In a moment. The last person on the earth anyone would expect to become a Christian in a moment becomes a Christian when encountering the resurrected Lord. This man had an incredible encounter with the resurrected Lord and was transformed. The power of the Lord on display for him. And friends, if this doesn't stop you right in your tracks, I don't know what else will. Literally a 180 in a moment. Because of the resurrected Lord shining brightly in his life. 
this story of God's power was incredibly instrumental in Paul's life. He even used it, as we see in a second, when he's interacting with God and when he has this vision in the temple. He's like, there's no one better to tell the Jews than me of your power. There is no one better. It is so instrumental in Paul's life. He tells this story again, and we'll study this in coming weeks. He'll tell it again to kings. There is nothing more powerful to Paul in his story than the power of God to transform in a moment. And what this tells us is that there's no one who's outside of God's power and influence. God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. I remember when I was a youth pastor, one of the things we did as a staff was we, we kind of like shared the different prayer requests. And the pastor who was leading us said, hey, guys, I, I want you to think of some of the biggest prayer requests, like big prayer requests, like things that are just like dreaming about. Please, just bring your big dream prayer request to our prayer meeting at church staff-wide uh, prayer today. And so uh, me and the other youth ministry staff got together and we said, you know what, we would love to see three kids from the public high school converted. Like, that was our three. Like, that, that's all we were asking. Like, that's a pretty small prayer request, but that's what we asked. And so we got there, like, yeah, we shared it, we prayed over it, and then that night we had youth group. I don't even know what happened at youth group. But after youth group was over, I'm sitting in the hallway, and there's three kids from a public high school sitting before me going, I, I don't know what's going on, but God is moving in my life. Can you tell me what's going on? And I sat there, and I started to weep. Because in that moment, I saw that God is incredibly powerful. I, I thought this was like a dream. In like eight hours, it's answered. And I was like, wait, what? Look, Paul's story, the story of, of three boys from a public high school who didn't grow up in a Christian home coming to know the Lord. God's power is, it's mind-blowing. There is no one, friends, there is no one that can withstand the power of God in their life. And I want you to know that. There is no troubled son or daughter who have left the faith that is not within the realm of not being experiencing the power of God. There is no antagonistic neighbor that you're reluctant to engage that can withstand the power of God. There's no imam from Iran that can withstand the power of God. No one. No one is outside God's power. When God shows up in people's life, people are transformed, and I want you to know that. God's power is greater than anyone's power, and Paul's life is the case study. You might be reluctant. You're like, There's no way God can change my life. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Doubt not the resurrected Lord who even can overcome death. There's nothing. God shows to us his purposeful power. Of course, he shows us his power so that Paul might take the message of the gospel to all. He does that. It's purposeful power, and he does that with you. God is so 
amazing in this story. He shows us his wonderful wisdom in choosing the last man we'd expect to be his witness to the watching world. He shows us his incredible purposeful power that he might demonstrate to us there is no one outside of God's grasp. But he shows us one last aspect of himself in this story. And I want you to know this just as much as I want you to know the first one. In this story, God shows us his glorious grace. He shows us his glorious grace. Gosh, does God show off in this story. He just straight up shows off. After Paul explains to the Jews what happened to him in Damascus, he tells us this story that we didn't know about before. We knew about his road to Damascus encounter, but we didn't know about this temple encounter. He says he goes into Jerusalem, and while he's in the temple praying, the Lord appears to him. God draws near to Paul. I just want you to think about that for a moment. The Lord draws near to Paul as he's praying. And as he draws near, he tells Paul, you got to get out of here. Now, Paul doesn't like this. And he pleads with God saying, essentially, he's the perfect person for the Jews to hear about Jesus. Who can refuse the persecutor now turned promoter? Who can refuse this? And then he gets specific. Listen to the specificity of which he talks about. He kind of names his sin, verse 20. Look at this. And he says, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, when Stephen... This man of God was being stoned to death. There I was, standing by and approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. He names his sin. He's like, God, you don't want me leaving. <laughs> but the Lord drew near and says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Now look, this is something we can easily miss. Paul was intimately led by God even though he was a murderer. Paul communed with the living God even though he himself was a great sinner. Paul was brought near to God to hear his word and respond to it even though he had put Christians through hell on earth. It is his glorious grace to a murderer to draw near. Paul, sinner though he was, received the glorious grace of God. He received his unmerited favor. This story, friends, shows us God's glorious grace, that his moving towards us is not dependent upon what we do. Get this into your head. His moving towards you is not because you read your Bible. His moving towards you is not because you've gone to church. His moving towards you is because you didn't say your prayers. His moving towards you is because of his grace. And it is so hard for us to get that into our mind. He moves towards us because he is merciful and gracious. He moved towards Paul, a murderer, a person who was moving towards persecuting Christians. He moved towards them. And it wasn't because of anything that he did. It's because God is gracious. And oh, what glorious grace this is. There's nothing that I want you to know more than the love of God that's not because of anything that you've done. It's the love of God that is given to you because he's gracious. And you might say, how? I'm a sinner. Well, you know what he did with your sin? He put it on a cross. 
bearing it himself that he might be able to draw near to you. He says, I've paid for your sin and I want to be with you. Paul's testimony is of God's glorious grace moving towards sinners. And if you can't see that, oh, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Lord, move. This is my story. I've shared it before to you. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. I learned the best theology in my life. I love the theology. But guess what? I missed it. And when I went off to college, I didn't party at all. I was the good Christian guy because I thought God's grace was dependent upon my obedience to him. So when people were out drinking at Florida State University, I was out praying with my friends at Bible studies or I was out serving in the youth group. And you know what? I thought myself hot stuff. I thought God loved me, and he did, but I thought his love for me was dependent upon me. And I never will forget the moment when I listened to a sermon on John chapter nine, when the man who was born blind was healed by Jesus, and when he interacts with the Pharisees who can't understand that Jesus would heal a man because he just wanted to heal his man graciously. And he ends up talking with these Pharisees, this blind man who largely wasn't educated likely, looks at these Pharisees, probably Pharisees educated at Gamaliel's feet just like Paul, and he goes, well, this is interesting, isn't it? You guys are educated. I just was blind, now I can see. And when I heard this sermon on John chapter nine, it was like scales falling from my eyes. And for the first moment in my life, I realized God's love for me is not dependent on what I do. God's love for me is simply dependent on his grace and on his mercy. And in that moment, I was floored. And I began to weep because I saw seemingly for the first time God's glorious grace. There is nothing I want you to know more than the love of God because of his grace, friends. It's the glorious grace that Paul received. It's the glorious grace that I've received. It's the glorious grace that a lot of you have received as well. But we can't lose sight of this. This story shows us his glorious, glorious grace. Have you experienced his glorious grace? Has his grace grabbed your heart and freed you from having to earn God's love and affection? Have you experienced his intimacy and kindness simply because he is good and gracious? Have you received the peace that comes from his grace? My friends, if you have yet to behold the God who shows off his glorious grace, consider Paul, consider my life, consider many in this church who have similar testimonies of his glorious grace. See it, see it. See it. His love is not dependent on what you do or what you don't do. His love is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the life that you and I were required to live but died the death we deserved. The glorious atonement. It's the way that his grace can come to us. And oh, that you would simply trust it. That you would receive it. Friends, it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what you are currently doing his grace is not dependent upon that. He welcomes you by his grace. Just look at Paul's life. 
So all I can tell you is, you know, Terry Williams, what a sight, right? But that is nothing compared to what God does all the time. That what God does through the trees, what God does through Paul, and what God does through you and me, it should leave us in awe. We see it all the time. His wonderful wisdom, his purposeful power, and his glorious grace. Let me pray. God, there is no God like you. Lord, we think we get you sometimes, but then your grace astounds us. Your wisdom leaves us in awe. Your power just humbles us tremendously. And oh, have we behold that in your story today, in the story that you have written and have given to us. Oh, that we might respond in praise to you, oh Lord. Oh, that we might respond trusting your glorious grace, resting this day from our burdens, our worldly cares, from the worries of this life. Oh, that we might rest in you, our great and glorious God. May we do this in song and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.